Hello, friends. Welcome to the Nexus Podcast. I'm your host, James Dice. Each week, I fire questions at the leaders of the smart buildings industry to try to figure out where we're headed and how we can get there faster without all the marketing fluff. I'm pushing my learning to the limit, and I'm so glad to have you here following along. This week's podcast is a conversation with Tanya Barham, founder of Community Energy Labs, a startup out of Portland. If you like smart building founder stories, this one's definitely for you. Tanya takes us through the many stops on her career journey from the utility industry into the wellness industry, back to utilities, and now into buildings. Community Energy Labs sits at the intersection of a lot of topics we've covered on the show before. Advanced supervisory controls, grid interactor buildings, and the small building smart market. We'll throw in public entities for good measure. Those are their own unique animal. Tanya is a ball of energy, and this conversation gave me a lot of motivation to keep pushing for change in our industry, because we can do it together. So without further ado, please enjoy the Nexus podcast with Tanya Barham. Hello, Tanya. Welcome to the podcast. Can you introduce yourself? Hi, James. I'd be happy to introduce myself. My name is Tanya Barham. I'm the CEO of Community Energy Labs. And we say that in the same way that Tesla galvanized consumers around a vision for clean, all-electric self-driving cars, our technology enables clean, all-electric self-driving buildings. So CEL has built a software-as-a-service control platform that's powered by machine learning for building operators who find it complex, frustrating, and very expensive to meet new building energy goals and time-of-use utility prices. Cool. Well, I want to get into the, the details of that as I, as I normally would. I want to hear about your background first. So can you take me through your career path? How did you get here? Well, I think like a lot of us in this industry, probably no one at age seven was like, oh, I really <laughs> want to work in building controls or electrical utilities. However, you know, I do remember my journal from when I was a kid, cause like my mom kept it. And every year it would ask, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I was really fairly consistent. Actually. I was always like artist, scientist, artist, scientist, both of them. I wanted to be both. And so I do feel like being an entrepreneur in STEM is a little bit of an art and a science. So yeah. you get to do a little bit of both. It's very creative. You're sort of creatively trying to use technology to solve problems. And so I think just what's really driven me is a lot of curiosity. So I have, the, I have a pretty long track record I would say guiding transformative energy technologies through the valley of death to commercial success. So I started my career in software, more or less by accident. I was in college. I was studying geographic information systems. Of course, I, like most people my age, was in chat rooms and listservs and very had my email and, you know, and I think a lot of adults are like, what's this email stuff good for anyway? And we're probably still <laughs> asking that question. <laughs> Yeah. But that got me super interested in that. But I was also interested in ISO. I've always been kind of a process nerd. So I was interested in the ISO 14001 standard, which was new and emerging at the time, and how you could use geographic information systems to manage ISO 14001 for geographically distributed organizations. Okay. So as it turns out, this was in 1999. I was a fellow through a reciprocal research program in Iceland. And my research project was to study the application of ISO 14001 to the aluminum smelting industry. 
and to see whether, you know, so in Iceland, you've got all these big tides and currents. And my thesis was that when you apply a um, prescriptive standard, like they had in the EU at time, parts per million, parts per billion, um, that it's not going to work in an environment like that, because of course, the solution to pollution is dilution. <laughs> so my thesis was if they could voluntarily adopt a self-reported standard, that that might be a more effective way to actually manage environmental impacts in that industry. So what I did not understand, though, was that ESOL, the company that I was trying to study, was going through a hostile takeover on their board. <laughs> so, <laughs> so at some point I got called into the office of some random middle manager who accused me of corporate espionage and kicked me out of the building. Oh my God. <laughs> because they thought I was trying to find their environmental impacts in order to drive down the share price uh, for the takeover. Now I wasn't aware that any of that was happening until after the fact, right? Yeah. So, you know, lots of people are like, you should put corporate espionage on your resume. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> So one of my professors took pity on me and he was starting a startup that did sort of GIS. So I just became a GIS tech for this startup and was okay. doing some sort of low level visual basic coding, working with really early versions of Esri products like ArcGIS and ArcInfo. Okay. And they sort of said, Hey, we want to be, we want to come up with a product that we can sell. We don't just want to be a services company. Does anyone have a product? And I said, Hey, I've got this idea to combine GIS with um, ISO 14001. They were like, cool, go work on it. You know, they paid me, I think 45,000 bucks. And I had a little tiny team and I did my own little coding. And then they sold it to, I want to say Shell Petroleum or something like that for like a million oh. bucks. So I was, I'm in Iceland and I decided I want to go back home to the States. And so I'm looking for jobs. And at the time I had been learning JavaScript. We would been working on web-based applications using GIS so just kind of like all this stuff on the internet was early too. And the company, the management consulting company they worked for worked on uptime planning and scheduling, predictive preventive maintenance and power plants during the Western energy crisis. And they were mostly sort of older guys, management consultants. And so they were kind of like, hey, kid, do you know anything about computers? And I'm like, I do know something about computers. <laughs> and they were like, great, you're hired, you know? And so these guys are like, I was in Colorado Springs Utilities where you are. And they're like, here you go. Just have at this multi-million dollar computerized maintenance management system. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, see if you can get it. And I was like, wow. You know, so that was pretty neat. And I got pretty hooked on the energy industry because it was just such a huge, you know, it was during deregulation. And this yeah. was before people knew that the markets were being manipulated. I mean, I think there were people who had their suspicions. What do you mean manipulated? So when we look at like what's going on with Enron and the sort of manipulation of the transmission system and, you know, power trading in order to jack up prices. And so people were selling energy at extremely high prices into the California, the deregulated markets. So all of the plants that I was working with were at the time had become independent power producers. Some of them, almost all of them were selling into the California market. Okay. So one story that I like to tell is, you know, so you'd have all these folks with these like really aging peaker plants, like literally in Colorado, there's some peaker that was built in like the turn of the century. It's just been like one guy named Olaf and his goat you know, Olaf in his later hosen with his goat up there. And like once a year, they fire up this peaker in like, you know, Paducah, Colorado. And that's what it's supposed to be used for. But during the Western energy crisis, like that thing, if it were running 24 seven, could just be selling into this 
very high price of energy. And so suddenly all of these utilities wanted us consultants getting their heat rates down and just chugging out, you know, send some, send some energy through the grid. And so, you know, these places, they want the, you want that like guy in the later hosen and the goat, like bolts are flying everywhere. Steam's coming off that thing, you know, yeah. the goat's like bleeding its head off. And, and so that was pretty fun. I mean, it was pretty crazy, but it was pretty exciting. So I got hooked at that point on energy. I'm like, wow, is it always as fun? And then of course, Enron happened. And at the time though, I had already been thinking like, I want to get out of coal and gas. Cause I, I mean, those plants are awesome. I also worked at Navajo generating station, which was just a massive, massive plant. You're out in the middle of nowhere. And I loved Navajo culture. And I really thought, wow, these coal-fired plants are a feat, you know, just all the things that need to come together to make this thing work. They're so complex, but I wanted to work on renewables. And at the time, you know, they were still pretty fringe. And so I moved to Portland, Oregon, and I started networking. And eventually a Bonneville Environmental Foundation was like, hey, we'd like to see more of a proliferation or professionalization of grid-tied solar photovoltaics. And we've got these cool green tags that will sell off of these PVs. What do you think about coming up with a program that would, you know, sort of commercialize these grid-tied solar systems? And there was so much resistance. This was like 2002, I think. There was so much resistance. Like the utility linemen unions were like, you're going to electrocute every lineman in America because these systems are going to feed back out onto the grid. You know, building inspectors didn't know how to inspect them. When we were looking at solar installers, it was all just like literally a bunch of dudes with like ponytails who'd been doing like off the grid systems for their commune. There was, so there was no professional workforce, you know, nobody knew really about solar in any kind of a broad commercial way. So we just had so many challenges and being the kind of person that I am, I was like, oh yeah, that sounds great. I'd love to do that. So just kind of like dove right into it. And now that program, so what we did was we built a solar for our schools program that really leveraged schools as a way to both educate consumers and students about clean renewable energy. We use the installations at the schools as an opportunity to educate labor unions and professional workers in the solar installers industry on job opportunities. We use the installations to educate building code officials on safety and protocols. And, you know, we would give feedback back to manufacturers like inverter manufacturers. So it was, you know, when you're bringing in a new technology like that, it's such a ecosystem play. You really have to spend so much time educating people about the technology. But now I like to think that, you know, 20 years hence, like so many of the students that we educated about the power of renewable energy are probably the same people that are buying gigawatts worth of solar for at grid scale. So yeah. Cool. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Do you feel like, so this is fast forwarding in our conversation a little bit. Do you feel like that experience kind of introducing a new technology into the ecosystem is helpful for you now that you're working in building controls? Yeah. I mean, I do think that it's sort of poisoned my mind in a way because I'm just like, I can do anything, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I can take something that doesn't work at all. And you know, make yeah. it work and make people love it. So, you know, it was funny because after that solar first schools, I went to PECI, Portland Energy Conservation Inc., which is the nation's first energy conservation plan. It was a nonprofit that turned into a revenue-based nonprofit. So they would manage these energy efficiency programs for utilities. And prior to going there, I was always like, you know, I had a sort of power systems and IT background. So I was just kind of like energy efficiency. Isn't that like somebody's imaginary friend? Like, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Um, all the energy efficiency people are going to like 
leave you're going to see the statistics on your podcast but like <laughs> <laughs> no they're, they're probably that probably piqued their interest oh okay good right, sure. they're ready to put up their dukes yeah, yeah so i was pretty skeptical on energy efficiency and like but i was interested because peci had the software idea so they had an engineer an hvac engineer mechanical engineer who had come up with this idea for a diagnostic software that you could use so you would train field technicians how to use it they would go up they would hook this um, software to a rooftop unit, it would, you know, do what software does. It would take in some readings, perform some diagnostics and give them a list of, you know, it was basically like a fault detection and diagnostics for single uh, detached rooftop units. Interesting. Right? Okay. And PECI was a really savvy implementer and they managed to sell this program to a utility for, I think like this idea for like 7 million bucks. Wow. And and they're like, we're going to do 6,000 of these diagnostic retrofits. And, you know, and they're like, we'd like you to do this program. So they sort of poached me from BEF and they said, you know, we'd like you to run this program if you could in the field, kind of operate it. I wasn't the salesperson. I was like going to operate it. And I'm like, cool, show me the database. And they're like, the what? And I'm like, wait, that's not even, you didn't even budget for that? And they're like, no. And I'm like, how are you going to get the data from the Palm Pilot to the utility system and they're just like that's a great question and they're like all right well sh show me the software and they're like oh well, we don't have software but we've got these like a 30 11 by 17 flow charts Whoa. and i'm like oh okay cool well tell me about your trade allies and your you know your sort of installer network and they're just like well i mean you we figured you were probably gonna like do that and i'm like okay like and we need to get this all done in a year and we <laughs> We freaking did it, man. Like we somehow we did it and I almost killed myself doing it. So I felt like that was really my first startup experience. And that was a lot like building energy technology too. I mean, so it was, like I said, like solar for our schools made me feel like I can do anything. And then AirCare Plus was like even more complicated because it was all being uh, rolled out to small commercial customers. So like Arco, AMP, McDonald's, it was <laughs> wireless data transmission over Wi-Fi, which was super new at the time and really unreliable. The software programming was on Palm Pilots. Yeah. Literally, the data was being stored in an access database. I kid you not. Like it Whoa. was. We had a totally virtual team. This was 2004, so we were. It was like the first year that GoToMeeting even started offering software. So if you think it's bad now, like it was so much worse then. And we killed ourselves, but we did it. Like the program became very, very successful and very profitable. You know, customers saw the value because they were spending so much on HVAC in California, especially these places that had, you know, like a McDonald's or an Arco AMPM where you've got hundreds of locations and you can aggregate those up in your portfolio. The mechanical contractors that were our trade allies loved it because it was this way to talk to their customers more regularly rather than just having someone call them when something was broken. You know, yeah. I think that's the benefit of like fault diagnostics. And the, the utilities loved it because often they don't have a really good way to talk to their commercial customers, especially small commercial. So I think for me, I burnt myself out, but I got really hooked on bringing new technology to commercial customers, energy technologies in particular. It's such an underserved market, but I really just love the mechanics of how just the combination of like people stuff, business stuff, tech stuff, and then like tree hugging environmentalist stuff all in one beautiful, complicated package, you know? Yeah, I like that. The tree hugger, techie tree huggers, 
uh, for Venn diagram for buildings or something like that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think that should be in your next newsletter. I, okay. I give you I give you a uh, uh, Creative Commons rights to that. All right, you don't want to see me draw that out. <laughs> yeah. So what's the status of that today? How does that, is there? Still kicking, look okay. up. So they licensed that program. I mean, PEC, I sold it to anybody who would buy it, I think. Okay. I mean, I, I'm, I know I'm on the record. People from PEC are going to come out of the woodwork and be like, hey, I was so burnt out after that year. I mean, I'm still in contact with so many of the people that worked in that program. It was a great experience, right? It was truly like a startup, but I was just like, whoa. So I started a wellness company, but that program just kept chugging along after that. And okay. once you've done the hard work of building the product, they just kept selling it and selling it. And because it was software, it had great margins. So, you know, if you look up AirCare Plus, you can still see it licensed, white labeled all over the hmm. country. Okay. I think now it's owned by Clear Result because in 2014, Clear Result acquired PECI's assets. Ah. And then, yeah, I was running my own wellness company. And then in 2016, I sold that company and PECI asked me to come back to PECI 2.0 and work on their grid edge innovation. All right. So what brought you back into to buildings? Well, PECI came, had been, I, I'll admit, like I kept in touch with a lot of folks from PECI and Phil Welker, the executive director over the years, we'd always have lunch and Phil called me and was like, Hey, what are you doing right now? Would you want to help us do what you did with AirCare Plus again at PECI? And I'm like, oh, side eye. I'm like, I'll come on as a consultant. And then of course they just got me hooked. Like I got in there, we started working with the national labs. We were looking at microgrids. Mm -hmm. It was the early days of community choice aggregators. So we were looking at that trend. We started talking to like 94 different communities across the US about energy democracy and democratization of revenues from energy infrastructure investments, et cetera. We started looking at microgrids, virtual power plants. Like in 2016, this was considered very fringe. Like I would tell people that we were doing this and like, what are you even talking about? And so now it makes me laugh when those same people are like, we're doing a virtual power plant. And I'm like, oh yeah, okay. All right. Well, don't want to say explain, I told you so. Can you explain for the buildings folks, the non-energy buildings folks? Oh, okay. Yeah. What some of those terms mean, because we've done, we've done episodes on virtual power plants. Okay. I don't know that I've done anything at all on community choice aggregators. Can you talk about what that means? Okay. Yeah. So, you know, there's this idea. Most of us, most people who are served by a utility are served by an incumbent investor-owned utility. So a for-profit company that is granted a government regulated monopoly. So utilities got into this compact with regulators where they're basically allowed to make a profit on any capital investments that they make into serving the public electricity. And so if you're in a community, the utility can represent to you in many ways, like a vacuum that just takes money out of your community for what you pay on energy and gives it to shareholders completely outside of your community, which just as people were recovering from the wealth destruction that happened in the last recession, so many of these communities lost revenue, you know, people lost housing and wealth was destroyed. And they were just like, wait a minute. In the meantime, these utilities are allowed to make profit on us and we don't get any returns back into our community. Like that's messed up, man. So they started using, and then also they didn't feel that utilities, there were many communities that we talked to that had passed at the time, hundred percent ready for 100, hundred percent renewable energy commitments, which have since transitioned to, you know, people have realized that maybe it's not so much renewable energy as emissions reduction, you know, things that drive climate change. 
And they were frustrated because these small communities had no way to push their incumbent utilities into decarbonizing their electrical fleets. So these communities both had to give their money away to utilities by law. Those utilities serve the whole state. So a lot of times a community with, you know, a few thousand people, even 20, 30,000 people to them, it's like, oh, whatever, who cares? Like in town is a bigger customer than your community. So we don't care. Or at least that's how they were perceived. I will say by the communities within those utilities, you have lovely human beings who, you know, don't think about it that way, but at least that was what the perception was. And, and, and in fact, that's what it looks like, you know, they're trying to make a profit off of what they've already invested in, which is coal and gas. So anyhow, community choice aggregation in some states allows a municipality to aggregate all of the residential and small commercial loads in its territory and purchase energy on their behalf. So they now become a much larger customer. The poles and the wires are still often provided by that incumbent utility, but energy, which is probably the most profitable portion of a lot of utilities sort of value stack, could now be owned by that community. And it gave that community a way to keep the profits made on the sale of energy local. So we Hmm. saw that trend and said, this is very interesting. You know, what does this tell us about how we can keep more economic activity local, whether it's through local jobs, whether it's through something like CCA, whether it's through capital projects that are funded by energy infrastructure dollars, what are the levers that communities have to either reduce energy burden, so save money, or generate wealth and keep the assets, keep some of the benefits from the assets they're paying for local instead of paying for a portion of that asset that serves their community, the utility getting a return on it, and then the distribution of that return goes to shareholders that might live in Paducah, Iowa, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's CCA, which was exciting, right? Got it, got it. Can you also explain what a virtual power plant is? Absolutely. So everybody knows what a power plant is. So virtual power plant, you know, microgrids are getting so popular at the time, because again, I think the real, when we think about what's the stimulus for a a microgrid, it's not necessarily that people want to own utility infrastructure, but that's the valuable part, right? That's the part that utilities are allowed to get a return on. So what people want is they want that economic benefit locally and resilience too. You know, they want a more resilient grid. And as we were seeing our traditional grids starting to fail, especially rural communities at the end of infrastructure were, you know, like, hey man, we don't even have reliable power and we're paying, you know, for it. So microgrids seem cool, but there are a lot of problems with microgrids in terms of part of the reason the grid is so fascinating, our big grid is that all that redundancy and all that interconnection that we have makes it so much more reliable. And that level of reliability is much harder to accomplish the smaller, you know, the smaller the grid that you're working with, whether that's a building, et cetera. I think also at the time when this idea was emerging, you didn't have as much smartness and you still don't in many ways. So in order to make good decisions about, you know, obviously electricity needs to be consumed at the moment that it's generated because storage, at least chemical storage or battery storage is just, I know there are going to be tons of battery people who are going to come after me after I say this, but it's just not that cost effective in many circumstances. <laughs> so, you know, when you look at that on a microgrid, it was very difficult with just on the economics of a microgrid to make that pencil, even when you factor in reliability. But now when you factor in also just the legal hurdles. So every state utility is regulated by a state regulatory commission, which all kind of set their own rules. And then there are different, you know, additional sort of federal levels of regulation. And then each community has sort of franchises and charters that they've already signed with these utilities to allow them to operate. 
and just the political complexity of doing a microgrid as well as the technical complexity made it a lot less appealing. So we started looking at virtual power plants because they were operating in Europe using IT infrastructure to treat a number of sort of physically disconnected devices as though they were a single device. Now, in practice, VPPs are a total nightmare. Like, I'm not going to lie. I, would, I had a brief stint as the virtual power plant IT manager at Portland General Electric, and that's just like a hard job because you need to have far more standardization and sort of data and control than we currently have. But I think it's getting there. We're looking at, you know, people have been talking about this increasing need for standards and interoperability at that level, you know, open ADR, 2030.5 and other standards. But virtual power plants basically allow a series of disconnected distributed energy resources and sometimes not even distributed to act just like a generator does on the grid. So, you know, a generator will sort of look at the grid it will try to sync itself with the grid. It'll participate in markets and these virtual power plants that are aggregated behind some sort of IT layer, which serves as a translator, let's say, or middleware between the grid operator and the devices themselves. Now, there are plenty of problems with virtual power plants in practice, but it's a cool idea. And I think those problems are being worked out in places like Germany, Australia, and increasingly, obviously, there's interest in the United States for how to use um, instead of building a power plant, I mean, it's the same thing we did with energy efficiency. Like we've got all this stuff deployed out there. If we're deploying all the solar, all these batteries, why not knit those resources together and use them more efficiently or in a more coordinated fashion? It's like grid 2.0, you know, so. And the software that they use for VPPs, sometimes it's called Distributed Energy Resource Management System, DERMS, is that right? Right. I tend to think of DERMS, I mean, and that's the thing, I, when I was at PGE, it was so funny because people would be like, look at this article about a VPP. And I'm like, I'm, to me, that doesn't seem like a VPP. That's just like 250 batteries in an apartment building. So, so yeah. it was like, okay, cool. You know, VPP derms. I'm like, it's almost like saying, what is love? It, there's really no standard definition. It sort of just feels like on one side, there are a bunch of things that either can flexibly consume or produce energy. And on the other side, there's a signal, like a pricing signal or a capacity signal or something. And VPP and DERMS is essentially either that, VPP is like that aggregation of things with some sort of an intelligence layer. And the DERMS is, to me, I think of it more as the utility side. And I question whether DERMS is scalable. Again, I'm like, I'm saying all these things. Oh my God, I'm going to get so much hate hate mail after this, but I question whether DERMS is really scalable in terms of, you know, when we were looking at advanced distribution management systems, so that's also the sort of utility side ADMS. From an operational perspective, A, when you have private individuals who own these distributed energy resources, are they really going to want you to have visibility and control into their devices, whether you can already figure that out or not? Because if you have AMI, um, advanced metering infrastructure, or, you know, real-time meters on the utility side, you probably are going to be able to figure out if you want it, if you really wanted to, which by the way, I think they do, but are they capable of doing that? Not quite sure. If you have AMI, you should be able, you'd be able to figure out what somebody was doing probably anyway, if you were to apply AI to that. Now that said, having been at a utility as well, I do know that that 15 minute interval data is just moldering in a massive database somewhere. And then they average it all monthly and send you a bill. And I'm like, well, that was a good use of real-time data. <laughs> but in theory, if they wanted to, there's, they could, you know, 
see what was going on. That said, I just, you know, being behind the scenes in terms of what's really necessary. And I think the biggest issue is just, you know, all data scientists will feel this in their bones. It's just that these are not data-driven organizations. You know, a lot of times like their GIS data is totally garbage. So, you know, GIS, you want to use a data-driven system for your germs or your ADMS. GIS says that the transformer is here and it's really like 200 miles to the West. And that's not, that's not even like a hypothetical situation. That's a very common situation, very dirty data. And so part of it, you know, I think part of it, it's good that we're talking about ADMS and DERMS, because if you bring that stuff to light, the only way things get better is if you see them happening. But I just, what I really experienced the utilities and why I went to the building side. So now like what we've spent, you know, half an hour talking and just like getting to this, but on the utility side, what I really saw was I'm like, I think this is the, you know, what utilities are good at is saying like, here's what we need for grid stability. And they can come up with a price or a value for the flexibility to the grid. Mm-hmm. And if they could issue that as a price, I really don't think that they should be the ones managing on behalf of customers. A, the customers are going to want it. B, they're not good at handling all that data in a way that makes sense for customers and just see it's too massive when utilities started they were microgrids and they were crappy like if you not the pearl street well pearl street was probably pretty crappy but like if you look at the first microgrid outside of pearl street i think it was in appleton wisconsin and it was like a hydro and like that hydro just you know you couldn't keep the frequency stable enough so the thing was just like it was like a joke you know it was for like two rich people in appleton wisconsin and like sometimes the lights would be on and sometimes they wouldn't and then you'd blow up the lights and i mean (laughs) these grids were terrible and i just think that we're more accustomed to a more stable type of electricity and but that is how you innovate at that level one grid at a time and what i saw at the utilities is these are massive organizations managing a complex product And, you know, when I was doing DPP, I kind of had to talk to everybody. I'm talking to the people in programs. I'm talking to transmission distribution. I'm talking to our um, strategic asset management team and the GIS team. I'm talking to the operators and what they want. And what I realized is that often you've got these really siloed teams and like each team has tried to solve the, this disruption problem from distributed energy resources using their own discipline, whatever that might be. And because it's a multidisciplinary problem, each solution gets like 80% of the way there and none of them will talk to each other or relinquish control. And I almost felt like you need a microgrid. You need to pluck one person from T&D, one person from data science, one person from this, go down to the local community level or the building level or the block level, put one person from each of those disciplines in and create their own little company. And that's how the innovation is going to happen. So I really, I saw that first. And then later when I started talking to customers, I'm like, if you could create a VPP from the bottom up first, all you need the utility to do then is to sell you a real, send you a real time price that tells you what they need. And as long as you can respond to that while also solving the customer's problem, well, now you've got a going concern. And this is how to do something innovative because I just think the utilities are so stuck. And the problem is so massive. It's so overwhelming at that scale to try to solve these problems. It's just like, it's good to have these incubators where these ideas are getting cooked up and we can try them before, you know, once you start piloting these programs, I mean, it's just such a, it's a huge cost and it's, it's public money, you know, it's ratepayer money. So yeah, that's my, 
my philosophy on derms and VPP, I just think that communities are, that's why I got, it called it community energy labs. That's why PECI was very focused on communities. Community is maybe the biggest possible scale, maybe the block, maybe the building are the sort of best, you know, the most atomized place to really look at how to solve mm. problems inherent in the energy transition. But I think VPP is in the is moving in the right direction, you know? Got it. Okay. And so then you were at PECI and then can you talk about the transition from PECI to starting community energy labs? Yeah. I mean, it was a, it was a funky little transition. We, uh, so between 2016 and 2019, 2016, it was just sort of PECI was like, go out there and, you know, figure out something cool to do with community energy democracy, you know, so like I said, I talked to the lab, national labs, talked to the universities, microgrid researchers, talked to the communities and lots of them, and then invested in some technology companies that were innovating in this space just to sort of see what they were learning. And then we formed a thesis where like, here are four areas where there are gaps. And what I found was, you know, sometimes it's, it's harder to have money and find a problem to solve than it is to have a solution to a problem and find money. And actually, now that I've been on both sides of the table, that's absolutely true. Like it's way easier to be an entrepreneur who knows that there is a problem for sure and has an idea about how to solve it. And then to articulate that to other people and have them be like, good idea, here's my money. Then it is to start out with like millions of dollars of cash and be like, oh, what problem should I solve? <laughs> <You know? laughs> so we, we developed, you know, a lot, a lot like any incubator, we developed a thesis on four problems, four gaps that we saw in the market. And because we were a nonprofit, you know, but sort of a revenue-based nonprofit at the time, it really spanned the gamut. Like one was like a pure nonprofit play, just doing policy work on carbon. Another was technical advising for communities that were trying to either municipalize or they were trying to create microgrids or other virtual power plants or ways to decarbonize faster than what their utility would allow them to do and helping them. So it was like a project. It was like a virtual power plant project advising and consulting professional services and project development. Then there was a controls, so a supervisory controls idea that we had called LEAP. And the last one was some kind of market transformation consulting. So we put about 150,000 on each of those ideas over the course of a year. And what I said to the board was whatever ideas take off, those are the ones we're gonna double down on and turn into the next generation of PECI. So I think the board was just like, we just wanna work on Oregon climate policy and that's all we wanna do. And so I said, hey, look, we've got like, you know, 30 people in our ecosystem. We've got all these contracts, you know, I'll take the people and the intellectual property and the contracts. If you guys want to just keep the money that we have in the bank and work on the policy stuff. And I, you know, and some of the board members were pretty new too. So they were just kind of like, let us figure it all out first. And so I, I just sort of felt like it wasn't really going to happen. You know, we had been negotiated. That was 2019. So I took this job, I took this job at Portland General Electric, and I think just inside of a utility, you can probably already get the sense from me, like, I'm not, like, I'm, I love working with utilities on the outside. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of hierarchy on the inside. And like I said, yeah. I think that the scope of the problem is too big on the inside, but on the outside, you can just tackle little pieces, right? So I went to Portland General Electric in the meantime, and then, you know, I think just PECI finally got their feet underneath them. They realized they just wanted to do policy, and they came back to me and said, hey, we're ready to talk about transferring this intellectual property to you. It was a year later, but <laughs> that was the, you know, that was the genesis of okay. Community Energy Labs, yeah. So catch us up on from, from then to now. It sounds like what I know about you guys is you've been 
doing all these education events and you've been growing your customer base, but you've also been fundraising. So can you talk about the, the road to get here from since you started the company? Yeah, well, wow, where to even start? I mean, you know, listen, I, having managed like VPPs or energy efficiency programs or technology programs, I've sort of seen it all when it comes to energy management pitches. And I think a lot of investors have too. There are a lot of companies out there that do great stuff where I'm happy to see that they're raising lots of money now because they were probably a little too early <laughs> onto the scene, you know, but communities worldwide now are pushing buildings to convert to electricity from, you know, gas, heating and cooling. And in the meantime, they want them to use half as much electricity and by the way, consume power when renewables are making it. So, you know, in addition to passing these tough building performance laws, and I think you probably just saw that the White House is working with 30 communities to try to increase those building standards nationwide. There are more than 100 million Americans and half of US utilities that have also introduced time of use rates and demand charges that can be like four to 10 times more costly and complicated for especially commercial customers to manage. So I got really interested in talking to those commercial customers on how they were dealing with that. And then just other, you know, I'm always really curious about like, well, how do you just run your organization? Like, tell me about that. So we talked to like, in 2020, then I was, you know, I was planning to do this control spinoff or the policy thing for PCI. I knew I couldn't do it all because I didn't have all the money PCI had and 30 people, but I started talking to anybody who would talk to me. So schools, cities, ESCOs, so energy service companies like utilities and just talking to them about what's happening to your organization and would either what, you know, kind of generally saying what either one of these types of projects, this product development or whatever works. And one thing that just kept coming up was that these public, like municipalities and school districts were usually the first ones to embrace these all electric building codes and that they would then mandate that their own facilities meet these objectives. Yeah. Now, at the same time, you have these processes that are really put there to be, make good decisions with public money I know people get really annoyed by public procurement processes, but it's really there to make sure that as taxpayers, we're getting the best deal for mm -hmm. our money. Mm -hmm. However, it creates the situation where, you know, more than half of U.S. schools need HVAC upgrades, for example. Why don't they do it? You know, you've got kids in there and we found during COVID like, oh, gross, you know, like what does our indoor air quality look like? There are all these reasons we should be updating HVAC. Well, why is it happening? And what I kept hearing year, you know, from interview after interview after interview is like, okay, I might be spending $3 million a year on energy, right? But if I want like building automation that's, you know, and upgrades that are going to help me improve my air quality and my energy efficiency, I'm going to have to do a big retrofit. It's going to cost millions of dollars up front. It requires that I pass a bond measure, which is like, especially in rural and purple communities, like increasingly hard to pass. But even mm -hmm. if you're in an urban community, you're going to trigger a purchasing, a procurement process, which requires that you have at least three other bids it goes through multiple different states. It's like, it's a pain in the ass for vendors. And it's actually a pain in the ass for the customer too, right? right. And then by the way, that disruptive install is gonna like, it's gonna take up your, your, your time, your limited staff time and your building's ability to provide services to the public. Like a lot of schools that are Title I schools, they're providing maybe the only warm meals that these kids are getting that day. 
So I started to see like, whoa, like forcing everything into the CapEx budget for particularly publics, municipals, and people with like long procurement processes is really, really, it's the reason that they have such a huge deferred maintenance backlog, right? And so I started looking at how could these controls be used as a way to help them meet some of these carbon and electricity objectives, but that really is going to pay for itself very, very quickly and will be easy to purchase through, say, an O&M budget, which is also a very small budget, but we'll have a quick ROI and payback time so that they're not going to have to, like, justify it to a million different people and, you know. So that was really what led me to wanting to do a controls technology. So an IOT and software as a service technology that helps reduce operator complexity for energy management. It has a very, very quick one day install time. It has a very low price and then can be paid for either out of that O&M budget or through CapEx if there is already a project on the slate. But I think, you know, the important thing that I really saw was Oh my God, I love building technology and software. I love working in, in this market where commercial customers are our customers, but then we're also working with mechanical contractors, system integrators, and utilities. Like I'm like, oh, just like AirCare Plus. I love working with schools because they use the data and they really want to educate and they really want to learn about why. And so they're great teachers to the public about new technology as well as users. And also there's just like this public benefit that I love. Like the nation's K through 12 school districts spend more than 6 billion annually on energy, like more than they spend on computers and textbooks combined. And a lot of the research shows that if they just had decent controls, as much as 30% of their total energy is totally inefficiently and unnecessarily used. Like if they could manage that in a way that worked for their operator and wasn't cumbersome and time consuming, there'd be so much benefit to those kids. You know, they could put that back into improving their physical plant and their air quality. And so, yeah, that just got me like, as you can see, it just got me super fired up. Okay, so can you talk about the the actual, like you're a big fan of our white paper, small buildings on, on small building controls. Obviously it's what you're working yeah. on. Schools, like you just said, are some of those smaller buildings that have less resources. Can you talk about some of the research you've done and like what that market needs and how you've kind of positioned the products to be kind of what they need? 100%. By the way, I read that from start to finish. It was well-written and very, very, very interesting. I Thanks. think the problem is right now, you, you know, if I had to summarize it to just one thing, I could show you 20 images of every building control software or fault diagnostic software out there. And it's exactly the same story, whether it's a small IOT or a big like Metasys. It's a product designed by college-educated building engineers for college educated building engineers who really think that there's somebody in a button down Oxford in an air conditioned office doing nothing but driving those controls. And that's maybe why less than 10% of the commercial building market actually uses building automation. In most of the commercial market, the people who are running buildings are not college engineers. They have many responsibilities. The solutions available are just, they're too expensive. They're too complex. They create nearly as many problems as they solve. I mean, I literally have gone to schools where that automation system must be behind a local firewall. So it's sitting on like a 20 year old desktop computer covered in dust in a maintenance closet. This person is in a school two miles away. They get an alarm and they're supposed to drive over there, sit in the maintenance closet and fix it. And a lot of times it's just addressing comfort issues, right? And so then they'll override the system. I mean, it's almost as good as not having it at all. So, you know, I, 
45% of end users have a high school diploma and no more, and 20% are English as a second language speakers. I think the main thing to learn is to really think about what the customer's life is like and what are the salient things that you can do to help them save time and have the biggest impact on the things that drive their behavior, you know? Got it. Okay, so how does your product work? I know there's model predictive control involved, but can you talk about just how, how what, what it does? Yeah, so your listeners probably know a lot about model predictive control, basically building a model of the thermal dynamics of a building and its energy use in order to optimize the um, control of that building and the operational sequences to better balance occupant comfort, energy use, and other building operations objectives. Model predictive control is super awesome because you can optimize for multiple requirements in the building. However, to get to model predictive control, you have to build a model. <laughs> and that can require gathering anywhere from 400 to 1,000 inputs per building. So you're looking at maybe all told a 10 to $50,000 cost per building. So that's kind of a lot. Um, unless you've got a huge savings for that. And so it's a big upfront cost and it's a very time consuming. So we have a Department of Energy funded grant that looks at scraping that. What we're basically doing is, you know, we did it the baseline way. So we collected all of the inputs that an energy modeler would need to model. I think we now, we have 14, maybe 20, somewhere between 14 and 24 public K through 12 buildings of various sizes and in different climate zones. And we collected all the data from one of their buildings the regular way. And then we've done a, a bunch of collection using automation techniques, estimation techniques in order to build just a very low order, use that metadata to build a very low order model much more quickly, and then use black box reinforcement learning, machine learning techniques on the back end to correct for some of the things that those low order models usually get wrong, like disturbances, so like infiltration. So what that does is it allows us to do better than nothing control. Now, this might not be like the most perfectly tuned building yeah. by your, but much better than the amount of control that the building has right now with very much less input and cost to operators. And so that's really our innovation is driving down the collection cost and the model setup time, as well as using machine learning techniques to correct some of the problems with low order models using time series data through either APIs, thermostats, um, or other, other sources of data in the building or the building. Hey guys, just another quick note from our sponsor, Nexus Labs, and then we'll get back to the show. This episode is brought to you by Nexus Foundations, our introductory course on the smart buildings industry. If you're new to the industry, this course is for you. If you're an industry vet, but want to understand how technology is changing things, this course is also for you. The alumni are raving about the content, which they say pulls it all together. And they also loved getting to meet the other students on the weekly Zoom calls and in the private chat room. You can find out more about the course at courses.nexuslabs.online. All right, back to the interview. Fascinating. So that really helps me understand how the product kind of creates a model and then helps control the building better. Can you talk about what types of buildings you're then applying this model? What are the attributes of, of those types of buildings? Yeah, why don't I talk, if you don't mind, a little bit about what is the problem or the pain point that we solve? Because it may not be so specific. There are some specific building types that we're really starting out with in our go-to-market. But I'll tell you a little bit about the problem and what kind of building operators it really will attach to. 
So if you think about it, you know, I've been in the energy industry for 20 years now, started out at power plants, you know, moved on to distributed solar, uh, rooftop maintenance software and energy conservation. And now, you know, kind of on this weird, wacky, wild side of sort of building controls, <laughs> building controls that interface with the grid and time of use prices. So why now? Well, if you look at the rate of the ramp rate on the number of climate laws that are being adopted or commitments made by states, you know, some of the most populous cities in the United States, 65 electric utilities, you're seeing this world where regulators and utilities are pushing building operators to address greenhouse gas emissions or energy surpluses or the duck curve there. And they're passing, you know, tough building codes on one hand. So if you look at like, all electric building code for commercial in Washington or HB 1257 in Washington, more and more states are considering, you know, adopting codes that push for electrification. And in addition, you know, governments are looking at the, the Biden administration just said, hey, let's look at local building codes and see how we can get these local municipalities to adopt more aggressive energy codes for their building performance. So more than 100 million Americans and more than half of U.S. utilities have also introduced, you know, so that's on the building side, on the utility side, these time of use rates and demand charges, which mostly are going to impact customers that have a peak coincident demand of about 100 kW. So that's not gonna be like a really tiny customer unless they happen to have an aggregation of a bunch of you know, small loads. But those are that's somebody who has really peaky loads. And increasingly, as you electrify fleet and as you electrify heating and cooling, you might see some of those higher peaks. So let's say 100 kW. So if you, if you sort of jump over that threshold, you may now be facing demand charges in addition to some very complex commercial rates. So I would say that those are our customers. They're people who are facing more complexity in their um, building operations because they are going to electrify either because of their own um, commitments their boards have made or their operators have made, as well as changing commitments from their municipalities in terms of how uh, building codes and uh, building operations as well as new utility tariffs like you're seeing in places like Illinois, Ohio, California, all over. In fact, the IPCC recommends um, that utilities worldwide adopt more time varying rates as one means to climate change. So when you take a look at, so we serve primarily K-12 right now, but also municipals, here's why. You know, Kim, let's say this woman is Kim. She's a superintendent for a K through 12 school district in California. They're spending $3 million per year on energy, even with solar panels everywhere. Her utility just changed their prices. So Kim has to manage time of use rates. And even though she has eliminated a lot of her energy costs with solar, she still has to pay demand charges and they're significant. They're anywhere from 30 to 80% of her bill. Even in the Pacific Northwest, which has very cheap energy, even if you don't have solar, it's still about 10% of a district's energy bill. And districts spend over $6 billion nationwide on energy, more than they spend on computers and books. So she could be looking at a 40% increase in already one of her largest bills. And what's more, her school board and the local municipality mandated that their facilities be carbon neutral by, you know, let's say 2030. So what are her options? Well, if she goes the building automation route, most building automation options are really costly. They're really complex. They're typically bundled with multi-million dollar upgrades. Kim has to pass a bond measure or navigate this lengthy procurement process to pay for the upgrades. 
Those extensive installs disrupt her ability to use that space, to feed kids two hot meals a day and provide services to the public. And then she's got this really tiny, scrappy crew. It could be janitors that are doing the routine maintenance on that equipment. And mostly they're running around putting out fires, like sweeping up vomit or you know, raking mulch or fixing broken old HVAC. And they don't have time to sit down and drive this building automation. So what most of these folks do is they just skip automation. Kim is literally tracking their energy costs in a monthly spreadsheet. I loved, I reposted your article so many times about death to spreadsheets. This is Kim. This is what they're doing. They're managing their facility profile using the spreadsheet. And then they send, you know, this crew out to manually program hundreds of devices and respond to comfort calls. Even if they have a wireless interface for that, they're still going to have to program every single zone, right? And you don't know if that programming is actually going to have an impact. So let's say you're trying to avoid demand charges and you cycle one quarter of your machines on at one time, another quarter at another time, another quarter at another time. Um, you're not going to find out if it worked until next month's bill. And in the meantime, when you do that, it's fairly arbitrary. You're going to end up having comfort calls. So, you know, it's just a, it's a nightmare for these folks. And so it's probably why less than 10% of commercial building market actually uses automation. The solutions are too expensive. They're too complex and they create nearly as many problems as they solve. So we wanted to, you know, we applied to the department of energy and other folks to come up with something far simpler. A lot of people offer IoT and software as a service control platforms, but we, we really wanted to put our smarts into those machine learning um, models that I talked to you about that would orchestrate that equipment in real time in a way that balances two main objectives. One, some kind of a real-time signal. So that could be carbon. That can be one of these real-time or time of use prices. We'll be starting a real-time rates pilot in Southern California next month with several schools. And then on the other side, you have occupant comfort. And these algorithms are looking at using the information from that IoT to balance those two objectives so that you're not constantly getting overrides in response to this real time or time varying rate or in response to managing in order to reduce demand charges that might come from electrification. So I talked a little bit about you know, how that works technically, but how that works from a business perspective is it's just, you know, I mean, it's just like your cell phone or your cable modem. We either connect with the buyer directly, we're referred through a utility program or a channel partner. The customer chooses to install one of three packages based on the underlying systems in their building and the building characteristics. They might have uh, wireless thermostats that we can communicate with through an API. They might already have a building automation system that speaks BACnet, or they might require those sensors and that gateway device. Either way, there's a different cost to implement each, both in terms of labor and the off-the-shelf equipment. But that typical install, whether it's trying to find all the points on their, you know, BAS and sorting through that bowl of spaghetti, or whether it's connecting through their API, it's, you know, costs around $10,000 for a typical one-time, one-day install and setup at that site. So once installed, we then charge a fee to monitor, predict, and control energy using the machine learning algorithms. And what we're seeing is with an average savings of 5 to 25%, that school would pay back its investment in two to four months pre-COVID and under a year in COVID conditions. So, you know, our price point was we developed it specifically for a segment of buyers like municipals who have difficulty doing these big omnibus type solutions quickly. 
but they need a quick response to some of these performance goals that are coming online for them. So we made sure that we were able to, you know, uh, address their need for a very low price point for a budget that could fit within a really lean maintenance and operations organization and for an interface and product that were really eliminating a lot of the hassle from these very leanly staff maintenance operations. Got it. Got it. So what are the, some of the ways that you have looked at the product from that simple lens? Like, do you have an example of, of maybe something that you changed from the BAS world or changed from like the IOT world or something that like made it, made the implementation of this for that janitor type of person simpler? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm kind of amazed at how few products out there seem to have been co-developed with the actual end users and customers. So these are typically multi-stakeholder organizations. Before we ever wrote a line of code, we spent more than 60 hours with one-on-one and in groups with maintenance and operations directors, energy managers, end users like HVAC techs and facilities managers, control professionals who would be using the equipment to learn about what their lives were like. And we had multiple stages of that. So some of these were paid for by, for example, the Electric Power Research Institute, some by SEE, some of understanding how to structure those in-depth user experience workshops came from my experience working both on the building side when I did solar PV and rooftop unit software and on the utility side, managing virtual power plants and demand response programs. Mm-hmm. So knowing you know, that, that those two sides of the bridge often don't meet very comfortably, we set up several questions a a series of questions, so a series of workshops, about 12 hours worth of workshops, six two-hour workshops, and we worked through those with end users and, and, you know, with input from the utilities too, which were basically walking them through the energy transition, how that interacts with HVAC or building technologies, what they know about how that interacts with prices, and then just what drives your daily routine like your operational reality. And what you saw was that the way that these utility programs are built and these prices are built, they assume that this person has the capacity to create controls that will meet even a simple objective like critical peak pricing, and they do not. Or if they have a BAS, there are certain things around the BAS, for example, like security considerations, where typically these are set up during a big... um, procurement, right? So when they do a big HVAC upgrade, they'll put in the BAS at the same time, they set it up and then maybe they never change the programming again or tune it. And so you have these very rigid central controls. And what we found is there were a lot of issues with occupants, with teachers unions, and these rigid controls really became like a a millstone around the neck of very tightly staffed maintenance organizations. So we then started working through like, okay, here are their nightmare scenarios. Okay. <laughs> here are the things that happen to them every day. I mean, comfort calls were a big one. And then of course, demand charges were a big one and just finding a way to have the capacity to do both. And we started working through the interfaces, some mock-ups and saying, well, what if we did this? What if we did that? Would this be easier? Would that be easier? And a lot of times what we saw was that actually a couple of things that were really transformational in how we built our system are using data in a very smart way. So on the back end, when we do our data collection, and then when we start to hoover up all the time series data, it's in a brick compliant database. And so Brick uses GraphDB, and I'm not 
you know, the technical lead at my company, but as best as I can understand it, the cool thing about GraphDB is it allows you to see relationships between different elements within the building. So we started to find some very time-saving ways to query our database where you could immediately see relationships between certain types of data characteristics or building characteristics and outcomes. And so things like that allow us to continue to simplify and tune the interfaces so that we're giving more default values to users and we're serving up information much more quickly rather than them having to search for it. We also, you know, because we don't have that sunk cost that legacy building automation has. I mean, that's just an unfair advantage. I mean, ask MySpace, ask Friendster, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes you lose because you're too early or you have a lot of sunk costs. It's that innovator's dilemma. And, you know, when we go out and we see even the new, like Johnson Metasys, you know, some of the big brands out there, you know, they've made some innovations, but smaller customers, you know, I mean, they're not going to like dump it all and start again. I mean, I think we saw like Honeywell has put out a a, a dashboard for small to mid-sized customers, but, you know, a lot of them are really coming from this world of just focusing on all the things that need to be done in the building. And what we found is like, Fault diagnostics and alarming. Yes, there. when you start to put sensors and you start to measure and look at stuff that has never been measured and looked at before, I mean, everything's broken in these schools. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> it's all broken, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so we kind of have had to say like, well, we're focusing on the future. We're focusing on the newer equipment, the electric, the all electric stuff. And we're solving a problem that will be bigger and bigger in the future as many of these schools get funding mm-hmm. to upgrade this stuff. Because otherwise, you know, you're just like, this unit is not working. But- they actually don't have time to fix that unit. So you do have to ask yourself within the operational constraints of the users, is fault diagnostics useful? No, they're not going to respond to that. They can barely keep up with their PMs. They run stuff to failure and then they replace it. They run it until it breaks. And then, I mean, and I know that that's not efficient. Well, this is why I like to say that like the buildings industry is not this homogenous blob, right? There are these Mm -hmm. different types of buildings because I think fault diagnostics, as we've talked about, ad nauseum on this podcast is useful for a certain person that can use default results, right? Yep. If you have, if you have a professional building engineer and facilities team that is capable of putting in work orders, tracking work orders, planning and scheduling and following preventative and predictive maintenance, best practices, you should be doing fault diagnostics hundred percent. If you have a chronically underfunded, and if you can recover those costs in your physical plant through increasing rents or, you know, refinancing because you're a private entity and that's available to you, then great. If your only option is to fund this through a bond measure or this huge complex public procurement process, you know, in municipals, like operations and maintenance is not like the marquee item to spend money on. So I think there's got to be, yeah, we yeah. picked a segment where we're like, they have some very specific needs. And so, you know, we really built our tech stack. We don't have that legacy investment and we could really reinvent for this, this particular group. And what we saw too, was we're like, how come people can't do this wirelessly? You know, everybody loves Pelican because they can just access that web interface, right? So let's make it wireless. Let's make powerful search. I can go to Ikea on my phone and buy and search all this stuff. And so we've got this backend database that can kind of atomize all the pieces they need. And they can, instead of navigating through some like 10 levels of waterfall menus on a PC in a dusty broom closet, not a joke, not an exaggeration. (laughs) Why not have something that they can access securely on their phone 
and navigate using queries. And that mimics much more what they're used to in e-commerce. And I think part of that's just, you know, we were able to sort of deconstruct and reinvent the whole thing because we didn't have a, yeah. a big investment in some kind of technology stack, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Can you talk about the, this is my, one of my last questions product wise is the procurement process. So earlier in the conversation, you sort of unpacked what procurement, like why procurement is unique in this space. How have you made the procurement of this product simple for an organization like this? So you mentioned going out for bonds and things like that. Well, that is, that's a, that's a big issue. We have so far avoided that. I mean, we're also small and we don't have, you know, I mean, one of our partners is Schneider and we're working with them on a microgrid with a school district and a utility up in Washington. And, you know, it's really tough for them to want to roll out of bed for less than a few million yeah. bucks. In the world, mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> yeah. so we, we don't care. We'll go in and sell something that we get a $2,000 a year software subscription on. So I think there's just, you know, right off the bat, we make it easier because like a lot of startups, you know, initially we're willing to take less to do the same thing. And, you know, we found a way to build a stack that will still give us a decent enough payback, mm -hmm. you know, in the ways that typically you do, you have a freemium model, you have a basic model that's pretty brass tacks. It solves one pretty simple problem. And if people want to get fancier, they have to buy a support package, okay. et cetera. Got and it. we'll see, you know, I mean, we're not at the scale yet where we'll see how sustainable that is and whether we need to flex our model. I think a lot of startups do, but so far we've seen that there are buyers that are willing to pay for that. Like just save our techs the 20% of time that they're spending responding to comfort calls, you know, or futzing with our BAS. And we're just like, okay, well, we've got to keep that cheap. So I think our low price point right now is very attractive. Obviously, mm -hmm. the fact that we're willing to have conversations that can come out of just that maintenance and operations budget that's already been approved, like we can fit within that. We're not so big that we're going to blow up an already very small budget. And also, I think the short payback time is really critical. Okay, so you, you guys know this market really well. You have a product. I'm assuming you're fundraising. How's the fundraising process going? Yeah, well, we were pretty good about funding most of our product development using non-dilutive, so government grants, contracts, and pilots, but that comes with its own risks. And we really saw the infrastructure bill came and wanted to like fundraise fast so we could hire up and capture that opportunity and not just test our technology, but our go-to-market strategy. So we're almost done. The market's pretty hot right now, which I think <laughs> worked in our favor. But, you know, I will say that this is such a sticky, weird place. Like a lot of people are scared of municipals. They're scared of buildings. They're scared of the tech. And it's this weird combination of like, you're either a prop tech person or you're an energy person, but you're rarely both. Wow. And then we also pick this segment that everybody just hates, but we love them. So government university and schools, we, we love them. Gus, give Gus a big hug. But yeah, it's, it was, I think it's a, a space that people have a lot of scar tissue in. So going okay, but I would say like, I can't wait to prove the people that said no wrong. Love it. Love it. Founder's attitude. Uh, <laughs> awesome. Mm -hmm. Very cool. I love hearing this journey from all these different different perspectives. And now you're in into buildings, into the right customer for you. It's yeah. really, really cool. Buildings uh, is awesome. Like I love I working with building operators, right? Isn't it such a fascinating problem to solve? Yeah. It's yeah. an amazing problem to solve. Let's finish with carve outs. I'll go first. So my carve out is I just saw the movie Dune and this is going to bring out, 
this is going to bring out the nerds in the audience, but I, I've read <laughs> Dune and it was just the first time I saw the movie and I could not recommend it enough. I loved it. I thought they made every part that I loved about the book. They put it into the movie, which you got to love when that happens. Yeah. Um, and I cannot wait for like a year and a half from now when the, the second part's going to come There's out. There's another one coming. Well, I mean, the book's like, what, 700 pages. There'll be yeah. 10 more of these at least. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the movie <laughs> is just the first half of the first book. So I, I, I'd highly recommend those of you that hadn't seen it. I now need to see that. I need yeah. to see it. Yeah. Best quote from the movie. Is it a quotable kind of a movie or more just beautiful movie? Oh, I, th I think the, this isn't in the book. I don't know why they, they put it in the movie, but not in the book, but literally the first scene is, and this is going to expose my nerdery, but Sardaukar, it's the Sardaukar voice. Sardaukar is like the, you know, the, the emperor's warriors, the emperor's soldiers. They, they read this thing at the beginning. It's like dreams are messages from the deep. And that quote is just so, 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 so good i love it so much so i've been thinking about it all week actually dreams are messages from the deep i want to say this in a spot where you can edit it out if you want but speaking of that i'm like there's a side of james dice i learned about it as i was researching for this i read your poem tenderness online i'm like oh james was james was practicing a little buddhism i think i was like oh definitely yeah definitely yeah it was on your blog so anyway after having read that i'm not surprised that you just picked that quote as your inspiration from the movie the other the other good quote from the movie is at the end, uh, but I won't spoil it. It's with the, I didn't spoil it with the first quote. But anyway. <laughs> so what's your carve out? Oh, what's my carve out? Oh my gosh. Well, I had a different one because I had just, like I said, watched the big short the other night and that was really interesting. But now that you're talking about Dune, like the Blade Runner, the original and the remake were two of my favorite movies. And, you know, I know a lot of people couldn't get into this like very French very yep. like artsy farts. I loved it. Like second Blade Runner, I was a hundred percent all in uh, on it. I found it really good. So, okay, so maybe... we're going to go down a deep rabbit hole here. I didn't mean to do this, but the same director, they're, they're the same director. Dennis it... Yeah. And you can tell when you watch it for sure. That uh, was kind of the sense that I got when I saw the previews. And as you were talking about it, I'm like, I wonder if it's the same director as Blade Runner. Cause I loved that. And if you love Blade Runner and you love Dune, you have to watch his other movie, which is Arrival, which is like my favorite movie of all time. I will watch that. Hey, have you watched Delicatessen? That's one of my favorite movies of all time. It's so cute. Nope. Okay, you nope. gotta watch it. Dune, Arrival, and Blade Runner 2049 are, yeah, those are amazing, amazing movies. Yes. So thank you for sharing that one. Totally. Thanks, James. All right, friends, thanks for listening to this episode of the Nexus Podcast. For more episodes like this and to get the weekly Nexus newsletter, which, by the way, readers have said is the best way to stay up to date on the future of the smart building industry, please subscribe at nexuslabs.online. You can find the show notes for this conversation there as well. Have a great day.